1: Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show is about you, so we're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some killer free ebooks, drills, and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. And if you're new to the show, but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, and especially at our live programs here in LA, check out the toolbox at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. We've got a lot of fundamentals there. So body language, nonverbal communication, eye contact, vocal tonality, business networking, negotiation, dating, attraction, a lot of stuff that's more important than you might think. And we have our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California, theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp, or you can just email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything. Today we're talking with my friend Wesley Chapman. It's actually pretty deep. He goes into a lot of stuff that I wasn't necessarily planning for when we initially planned to record this show. And so instead of messing with it and trying to fine tune it into practical tips to handle XYZ. I let him tell some of his stories, and I think there's a lot of great points illustrated there and a lot of wisdom in, in those stories as well. So I think it's a little bit of a different show this time around, for sure, especially if you're used to the highly practical, highly scientific stuff that we usually go over, action points, etc. There is some of that, but less so than maybe usual. But I hope you guys enjoy this one no matter what, and I think it was interesting for me to record, so I hope you guys dig it too. So enjoy this one with Wesley Chapman. You work with a lot of people, almost like on a coaching level, but let's start from the backstory. Now the show is mine for the next three hours, Yeah, exactly, give or take. Exactly. No, here's the deal. I mean,
0: I got here like anybody else. I came here on a journey, and the journey for me uh, was was the reality very quickly of growing up fast. At at one years old, my biological father abandoned me. At six and a half years old, my biological mother abandoned me. Um, I remember many times when I was a kid, at at four years old, I was babysitting for a couple days at a time, uh, taking care of my three younger siblings. So I learned how to grow up very, very quickly. And in that process of growing up, I was also abused in every... Every form possible, everything from physical, mental, sexual, the whole nine yards. I had to go into story after story about, you know, different things that I went through. Uh, before my 16th birthday I tried to commit suicide 12 times so to say that I was disturbed would be an understatement and there's a lot of sub stories and there's a lot of craziness that is inside of that Um, an outlet for me was entrepreneurialism I've been an entrepreneur since the age of eight years old and that has been something that has been both a, a blessing and a curse because I've been able to use that to shield some of the things that I went through but I've also you know used it to shield things that I went through so I had to deal with them as I was going through so exactly
1: so 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 wait back up the truck you are an entrepreneur at age eight what does an eight-year-old I mean what can an eight-year-old possibly do to create value of any kind (laughs)
0: yeah, <laughs> it's true, right? It's like most eight-year-olds are just eating candy and, and loving life. The quick synopsis of the story is at eight years old, that's when I finally started getting a little bit of stability in my family life. I was taken in uh, by an individual who ended up keeping me for the rest of my life, and I call her mom. But what happened is is that when I first moved in with her, she was very, very wealthy, doing very, very well, had all kinds of things going on for her. And about six six months after I had moved in, she became permanently disabled and could not move her arms. And so I had kind of gone from this like living in hospitals and, and boys' homes and foster facilities to living in literally a 100-year-old mansion to then in months of time being basically told, you know, we're going to be back on the streets, don't know what we're going to do. Craziness is about to happen.
1: Terrible, terrible luck, I think, in many ways.
0: I must have done something, right?
1: I've always said that. In a past life, you were just an absolute...
0: I was like Hitler's right-hand man, right?
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm not even trying to make light of it. It's just the only thing I can do to react to just the terrible things that are just stringing along here. So how did she become disabled? It doesn't even make
0: she she developed fibromyalgia she was actually one of the first um she was actually the first female employee she worked for the VA hospital so she was a government employee she was the first female government employee to develop fibromyalgia and they didn't even know what they were calling it this was back in 88 so this was 1988 so they you know basically it was like arthritis, but way worse. And for anybody who's dealt with fibromyalgia, you know, you know how horrible that disease is. And so it just was eating away at her nervous system. So so anyway, this the story as quickly as I can tell it on the entrepreneurial side is I was coming down one morning for breakfast. I am a huge breakfast guy, and breakfast wasn't made, and I was storming into you know my mom's room to basically say, where's my breakfast? And I got to the door and I could hear her crying. And so I put my ear up to the door, like any good eight year old would do. And I started hearing things like, you know, we're going to lose the house. I don't know what we're going to do, you know, just, just a lot of negativity. And I remember going out to, we had a tire swing and it was like a cliche, you know, mansion this perfect little thing. And, and, um, I was sitting on my tire swing and I was just mad at adults. I was like, adults suck. Yeah, they just cannot get it together. What is their problem? It's like, what is wrong? I mean, A, I never want to be an adult because they're just idiots. And B, I can't trust an adult. And I was sitting on the tire swing and, and we had this gorgeous yard and we had a rose, an English-style rose garden and tons of flowers, everything you can imagine from tulips to peonies to daylilies, everything. And I remember sitting there and swinging on this tire swing and thinking to myself that every time I went to the grocery store with my mom, she, uh, adopted mom, she bought flowers. And here we had like this half acre Gorgeous landscaped yard, and it's like, why are you buying flowers? We have tons of flowers in our yard. Why don't you buy more bacon? That is way more important than flowers.
1: That's funny. My friend literally just walked in with bacon while you, we were you were telling me that story, and now you're mentioning he's bacon. he's now my friend because anyone
0: with bacon is is my
1: hero. Is a friend of yours? Okay, exactly. I got you. Okay.
0: Here I am, kind of going through this, and. <clears throat> I'm uh, sitting there and I'm on this and I kind of have this aha moment, right? I didn't know it was an aha moment because I'm eight years old. But I have this aha moment where it's like, wait, if we buy flowers and we have all of these flowers in our yard, then what about all of our poor sap neighbors who don't have any flowers? They'll definitely buy flowers. So I ran into the house grab the scissors. You can imagine me running out of the house as an eight-year-old with scissors and started just whacking these flowers down. And my mom was terrified that I was doing this. Here she is distraught going through this. These are her precious roses and flowers. And I'm, you know, this troubled, you know, youth that she had just taken in and I'm whacking her flowers away like an angry, crazy person. I cut these flowers, I get on my BMX and I just start heading down the road and I started knocking doors and I started, selling flowers and the long short of the story is I came back after an entire day of selling these flowers and I'll never forget it. She's sitting on her bed and she had her arms at this point in slings. So they were basically making an X on her chest and she was sitting there just kind of depressed. I mean, there's no other way to say it. And I sat down next to her and I reached into my pockets and I just started pulling out cash and I started putting it on her lap and she started bawling. Now, a little bit of you know context to this is that in her mind, now that we've talked about this story later in life, in her mind, she was thinking, I was a very troubled youth. I did some really stupid things, everything from bullying to I almost burnt down a 7-Eleven. I mean, all kinds of stuff. I stole thousands of dollars. I was a very troubled child, and obviously, rightfully so, some of the stuff that i had gone through. So in her mind, the first thing she started going through is, oh, crap. You know what did you do? Who am I going to have to apologize to? Like what's going on? What have I done? Have I brought this this child into my home and now they're stealing money? And so she started getting a little bit, you know, whatever. And so she looked at me and she said, "Where did all this money come from?" And I said, "Well, you remember all those flowers that you were yelling at me for cutting? I went and sold them." And she started counting it and she started crying. And again, going back to my perspective, I'm kind of like, you know. Does, is this all that adults do is cry? I mean, is this just all they do is just, you know, F up and cry over everything? And she said, I'm not crying. And I, I must have made some kind of comment because as we've gone through it, she said, I'm not crying because I'm sad. I'm crying because I'm happy. And she counted the amount of money that, that I had collected, and it was over $500. And she looked at me, and she said, go back out and sell more flowers. She's like, wait a minute. this We
1: have a good thing going here, man. Yeah, exactly. Cut all the flowers.
0: And so that started a whole... I started a whole deal and that speared into a car wash company, which started a landscape company, which started a house cleaning company, which started a marketing firm because I've learned quickly that I didn't like manual labor, but I loved convincing people right, to buy stuff yeah. that they needed to buy stuff.
1: So that turned into marketing. And 25 years later, there you go. Wow, that's very cool. So, I mean, what are you doing now, first of all? What
0: I'm doing now is the complete polar opposite of everything we just talked about, except it has everything to do with who I am. What I'm doing now is I've started a a for-purpose organization called The Human Project, and our mission is to create a community of empowered youth. And there's a tremendous story, again, about how that came to be, but basically what I've done for the last 25 years is built brands, built companies, sold, marketed, strategized, you know, and that moved into sales funnels and All the fancy stuff the kids are doing nowadays with social media and everything. And so I've always been able to adapt into these new things. I've won App of the Year with Apple. I've, you know, I have a, just like you, you know, we love podcasting. I've, I've geeked out on how to become, you know, good at podcasting and we've managed to do that and get some recognition for it. There's been all kinds of things in that regard, but my, My heart and my purpose has always been, and this is going to sound kind of crazy without a lot of backstory, but it's always been about my siblings. You see, I got out of my situation. I was abandoned for some reason. My siblings were not. They stayed with the abusive individual, they stayed with my biological mother, and they had a lot of. Damage because of that. Um, you know, when I got out at a young age and was able to kind of redirect my life and my passion, and my purpose, and all these different things, still went through a hell of a lot of different things. But my siblings were not; they never got out. In fact, I have very little contact with two out of the three of my siblings. One of them, nobody knows where where she is. So um, it's just this kind of internal battle that I've always had with myself of like, why me? And a human project has enabled me to kind of give the opportunity, give the resources and help children who are in very similar situations that I went through, some even more horrific than mine, give them hope, give them understanding. But most importantly, give them empowerment to live in the situation that they're in. Because when you're 14 years old and you're with your parents, you have very little options, you know, to make, to make a difference. The only option you have is the reaction in which you, you know, in, in which you react to the things that are happening to you. So a Human project is built around that kind of philosophy of how do we identify children who aren't in foster care, who aren't in boys' homes, who haven't been identified as, as youth that are struggling. How do we give the children in that group hope and how do we give them empowerment? And it's a very, you know, know, there's some secret agent type stuff to it because we're identifying people and children that aren't in government programs or don't have this. I mean, they're living in the closet. I mean, we have many, many youth who their parents don't even know they're involved in our program, you know, so it's, it's a really, it's a very covert operation that we're running. And at the same time, we're completely vulnerable and we're sharing these stories and we're doing things. So it's been an amazing amazing journey we've been doing that for the last year. We're now in three different countries. I'm traveling all over the place. I just got back last night from a 18-day road trip, you know, visiting family slash you know, schools slash you know, donors kind of thing and and speaking to youth and we reach hundreds of youth every single week with our podcast. We reach them with YouTube videos. We're launching web portals. I mean, we have so many different things going on. And so going back to my entrepreneurial career, it all makes sense. You know, we're launching an app in a couple of weeks. I mean, there's just so many things that my entrepreneurial career is seeding into this for-purpose industry.
1: So it's, it's been phenomenal. I mean, there's a lot there, but tell us why this is important. And it seems so painfully obvious, but tell us in your estimation why this is important. That's a great question. I mean, it, there's the stereotypical answer, right? It's important
0: because people are hurting, but it's important because a lot of the things that we are doing in our society, we, you know, it's, it's like someone and I, we were talking the other day and they're like, I think it was a group of girls that, uh, my, my fiance and I were hanging out with and they got on the con- or the the topic of Botox for some reason. Right. And they just started talking about what's going to happen in 60 years? You know, we we haven't had enough data to find out, is Botox going to do some long-lasting thing? People are just shooting weird stuff in their skin and making themselves look good today, but what is that going to do in 20, 30, 40 years or whatever? And it, it got me thinking about what I do and what I talk about all the time is we make decisions as a human race, and we've done this since the dawn of time. We make them with the, sometimes good intentions and sometimes not, but we make things... And then we don't understand the repercussions of those. We don't understand all the different elements of that decision. And we're facing something in that regard that we've never seen before in the history of the world. And that is the broken family. Almost anybody can throw a feather and hit somebody that they know has come from a broken family. And there's a lot of things that we say, well, you know, divorce is hard, but kids come out of it okay. Well, divorce is, you know, really hard and kids come, you know, are all messed up because of it. We have all these different, you know, opinions about it. But what it's really starting to show is that men, going right back to your, well, a part of your show, right? men don't know how to freaking be men because they think that being a man is the exact opposite of what it was, say, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And we're starting to create this entire breed of people who don't know how to raise what they're making. You know, it's like you look at any other species and they pretty much, you know, when they procreate, they know what they're doing. And, and they know when when they're supposed to let their young out in the wild and do their thing and whatever. And some make it, some don't. You know, animal kingdom is a little crazier. But as human beings, we're procreating and then we're just guessing. And we're just kind of saying... Oh, well, it's not important for a father and son to go fishing because I didn't go fishing with my father and I turned out all right. But yet, you know, you've had six babies with six different mommies. You know, I mean, there's, there's all these different things that we're just kind of throwing up in the air and saying that everything's okay. But is it? Now we're starting to look at some of the data and everybody can throw data out there. I hate numbers. I think math is overrated uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff. But statistically, uh, on the mathematical level... When we look at how many youth could a human project potentially impact in the United States of America, right? There's 25 million youth that fit our demographic. There's 83 million youth in the last census poll, I believe. There's 83 million youth in our country. 25 million out of the 85 fit into our demographic of being abused, being neglected, or being abandoned And that is terrifying. Those are identified youth. So that's really where, you know, what's the big deal? Well, this broken family, men don't know how to be men, you know, all these different aspects that are happening, fathers, this, that, I mean, all these things that, oh, it's just life, that's how it is, you know, I mean, all these statements that we're making, there's a lot of danger in that because systematically we're not teaching these children some of the most you know the most foundational aspects of being a human being and when we work with children it's we don't have like a magic wand or some crazy formula or something literally it's loving them it's caring about them it's showing them their possibilities It's giving them an outlet, showing them their their hobbies, things like that. I mean, it's such simple things that we do. It's complicated in some aspects, but it's very, very simplistic. But somebody asked me, you know, a couple weeks ago, they said, well, if you could compare a human project to anything, what would it be? And my response was parenting. I mean, it's Parenting. It's not some magical, you know, do these three things and, you know, this 12-step program. No, it's parenting. These kids just feel like they have somebody that cares about them. And I've met many of the parents of our youth, and the parents aren't these horrible human beings that, you know, should all rot in hell. They're human beings who have never been taught how to raise children because they, were, they themselves were not raised. And they're guessing And so it's just this whole long smorgasbord of information. But the reality is, is there's a lot of children out there who are hurting, who are in pain, who are dealing with things. And there's a lot of people who want to just say, well, that's life. And to some degree, I completely agree with that, completely. Sometimes we can focus too much on it and make excuses. But the long haul of situations, they're human beings with feelings. And if we don't address those feelings and really – give the opportunity for those feelings to be heard, we are creating a culture that we are now starting to see in small pockets. I still, you know, the world is still an amazing place. Don't get me wrong, but we're starting to see more and more and more of these children in adult bodies (laughs) acting out because they have never been heard. And we could go off on thousands of examples from, you know, racism to, to diet, to excuses, to economy, to, to, everything
1: else you had to overcome a lot to get to where you are now or what you seem to be now which is like ambitious reasonably well adjusted i mean that was unexpected given the your history right
0: oh yeah you know my life diagnosis at seven and a half years old the psychiatrists and doctors and psychologists all said at seven and a half years old, they were putting me into a high-risk boy's home, and they were hoping that when I, got eight, when I became 18, they'd have to let me go, obviously. They were hoping that I wouldn't be back in prison by, I think it was 23 years old, no, excuse me, 25 years old, that I would most likely be back in prison by 25, and their only hope is that I hadn't raped or murdered someone that's my report when you read my report from them it was this is his life is that he will be a menace to society in an orange jumpsuit and our only hope is that we can prevent him from murdering or raping someone right so yeah i was never supposed to be standing while i'm standing at my stand-up desk but uh, i was never supposed to be here talking to you on your
1: podcast that reaches millions of people so yeah that's a bad prognosis so how did you how did you get over or slash deal with some of these challenges that you faced growing up? Do you have tools for that that you can share? I do.
0: And I never had the prettiness of it, right? You know,
1: when I was doing it as a child, it
0: was all just kind of, I was going through it. Now, I went through an immense amount of psychiatric treatment. I would be very, very clear. I mean, I was in counseling every day of my life for the, uh, as soon as I was abandoned and put into the state custody. I was in counseling from six and a half until probably 17, 18 years old at least three or four times a week. So I went through a lot of different programs, a lot of different counselors, a lot of different studies, a lot of different things. And it was actually when I was 16 years old, I was on 25 pills a day. Everything I had was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar, ADD, all of it. And then every pill I was on had a side effect. And so I was on a pill for the side effect. And then some of those pills had something mean, you just get it, right? It was a pyramid scheme for for pharmaceutical. So I was on 25 pills a day from the age of six and a half until the age of 16. Now, if you look at that, that's, you know, 10 years basically of heavy drug use, heroin, you know, cocaine, whatever. I mean, prescription drugs drugs are just one molecule away from street drugs. So I was on these heavy, heavy drugs. Well, at 16 years old, my liver failed completely. I was in the hospital. I was green, you know, the whole nine yard. I had a toxic toxicity level that was going to kill me. The doctor told my mother, she he said, we either have to get him a liver transplant or hope that his body can cleanse this in the next X Y Z hours. I, I don't remember how many hours it was, or else he's going to die. And and I went home, and my mother is also a I don't want to say a nature path, but she's very very much into holistic healing and different things like that. And so she took me home, and she said, "Your only chance is to do something called a colonic." Now, if anybody knows what a colonic is, at 16 years old, that is the last thing I wanted to do, right? Yeah, of course. I was like, I'll die. That's fine. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't want a tube in my butt. I'm I don't good. want a tube in my butt, especially by, you know, this little old lady, right? So anyway, so I went home. I basically said, I can't do this. I can't live this way anymore. There was a lot of other things these pills did to me that just were not fun. And I said, I just can't live this way anymore. I would rather die than live this way. And I'm going to stop taking all of the pills. I'm going to do a colonic. So I got up. Went and did a colonic. I came home that night exhausted. I was very sick. Um, got up the next morning, and I didn't take any of the other pills. We went to the doctors. They were like, you can't do this. It's going to be horrible. You have no idea. You know, you're you're going to be coming off of pills that are you know, incredibly strong. And anyone who's ever had any drug addictions and you've ever had to get off of those, you know what I'm about to talk about. I spent three days in the fetal position, sweating, cold sweats, hot sweats, throwing up, bleeding everything you can imagine but I stuck it out and 72 hours after I went through that process it was a very amazing experience I came out with a clarity that I've never had even to this day I've never been as clear as I as I was in these moments where I understood exactly what I needed to do and I didn't have this all mapped out perfectly until you know recently where we started doing this with youth and adults we're now helping adults as well in these processes What I had created was what I called the H cubed, honesty, healing, and hope. What I had done was became very, very honest with myself. The last time I was ever sexually abused was when I was about six and a half years old. I'd been physically abused even up until this point. My mother was dating a man who was very, very physically abusive, but sexually abused, I I hadn't been abused for about 10 years at this point. And during the prayer and during my mind going into myself and being in this fetal position, I had this complete clarity that here I was, you know, beating myself up. I was doing all kinds of crazy things. I was living these two lives. You know, I was this entrepreneurial young adult who was being featured in newspapers and being having all these great successes in my little community. And yet I was this guy that was, was also bullying people and stealing and fighting and self harming myself and trying to commit suicide. So I was living these like completely polar lives. I was victim. You know, I was mad at the guy that molested me. I was mad at my mom. I was mad at all of these people. And in this moment, I had this complete clarity and this complete honesty that, listen, that's your fault. This is on you, Wes. This is your fault. These individuals that you're blaming are no longer in your life. And you're still allowing them to control you. And so the first step is this, which is the hardest, is honesty, getting real with yourself, right? We hear it all the time. Look in the mirror, become raw, become vulnerable, whatever. But it's really about becoming honest and saying, it is your fault. Everything you're dealing with right now is your fault. And I know that shocks people, right? It's like, what the heck? But it's the reality of the situation. I cannot change Whether I got, if I stubbed my toe two minutes ago or I was molested two minutes ago, and I, I don't know how raw we want to be on your show, but that's, that's fine. Yeah. We cannot control what happened. What we, the only thing we can control is our reaction to that moment. Now, that doesn't mean the stubbed toe doesn't hurt. That doesn't mean that being molested is, is, you know, not a bad thing. But the control that we give it is on us. And so this honesty, this clarity came through at such a, huge level that i was then able to step back and heal from the process the second of the of the three h's i was able to heal and to say this isn't my fault it's not me i mean anybody who's been a victim of these kinds of things will attest that the first place you go is why me you know what did i do wrong what could have i done better you know i I had those conversations and it's like what does a two three-year-old do better you know not poop as much. I mean, what do you do you do better as a child? But the reality is, is that that was a real feeling. But now that I had gotten honest with myself and was able to let go of things, now I started to heal. I started to see things clearer. I started to be able to open up the wounds, if you would, and then let them heal properly instead of just, you know, have these crazy scars or whatever. And then after that, I had hope. I could see the possibilities. I could see myself being with a family. You know, I was told at 13, so seven and a half, you know, here I'm told what I was told. At 13, I was told I'd never have a steady job. I'd never have a girlfriend. I'd never have children. I'd never be an asset to society. You know, I probably wouldn't even be able to drive a car. Um, I had some learning issues that I went through. You know, it wasn't learning disabilities. I just hated school. I hated authority. I hated anyone who told me what to do. So I was not your best student. So and plus, I was out making money. And I'm kind of like, why am I sitting in a stupid classroom with all these people who just want to beat me up when I could be out, you know, making more money than their dads make. And so I was a very angry individual. But at the same time, I had no hope for my future. I was being told, you know, these things, the individual that my mother was dating was also very mentally abusive. He told me that I would marry some handicapped girl. And he was very, very rude. You know, some handicapped girl who didn't even, couldn't even see out of her eyes. And, you know, I mean, just horrible, horrible things. Right. And so here I am, you know, believing this because, well, of course, I was, How could I not believe that? My dad left me at one years old. I mean, I was so horrible that at one, my dad didn't want me. I was so horrible that my next dad, my stepfather, was molesting me and beating me. And then I was so horrible after that that my mom got rid of me. So it wasn't a real hard sell for this guy, right? Right, sure, sure. (laughs) And so, but now that I'd gotten honest and began healing, I started seeing that there's hope. But no, they're wrong. I'm gonna live an amazing life. I'm gonna have amazing kids. I'm gonna have an amazing future. I'm gonna create amazing prosperity, not just financially, but spiritually, emotionally, physically, all these different things. And so that I didn't know that was all happening. I've arc you know, now I've gone back and kind of figured out how that all that process all happened. And now we've replicated that hundreds of times with youth and with adults. The simplicity of it is really understanding who you are at the core we call our adult program superhuman life and Concept with superhuman has always been external, right? Iron Man, it's an external thing that you put on your body. Spider-Man, He-Man, Batman, these are all external outfits and things that you wear. But that's not superhuman, you know? That's Marvel's opinion of creating a fictional character. Superhuman is getting to your core and pulling your core of who you are out, and that is when you experience the superhuman mentalities, the superhuman things, right? Even on a scientific level, adrenaline, we see these women whose children get trapped under a car and they lift the car up, you know, and save their children. It's, it's coming from within themselves, inside of themselves. It's not some outfit they put on. And so when I got to that point where I could get to the core of Wes the core of who I was, get rid of the abuse, get rid of the labels, get rid of all of the stuff, get rid of the drugs, get rid of everything and get to the core West. That's when my true journey started. And it took, you know, see, I'm 34 now. It's probably 30, 31 years old where it was kind of like,
1: you know what? I get all this shit. Like I got it. I, I'm understanding and I'm still learning, you know, I don't, don't be cocky, but How did you learn to no longer be a victim in those situations, but be a survivor instead? Well, I have a quote where I always say, you know, we have two options
0: life in life. We can be a victim or a hero. And even a hero had to be a hero to himself before he could save the world. And so when I'm a big, you know, Marvel geek, we're on that topic. But I mean, I don't care what story you listen to anywhere from, you know, Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, which I, you know, whatever. But, um, they had to save themselves before they could go out and save Gotham or go out and save, you know, the world. And so, uh, and I don't want to say that that was what inspired me, but I saw that at a young age. I saw that even in these comic books and even in these movies there was this common thread. All of these people had a choice. You know, I remember I was a big Spider-Man fan. And I remember just, you know, watching the choices that Parker had to make you know that he had to make these choices that he could use his power I mean of course the movie pulls it out you know with with great power comes great responsibility he had to use his power in a responsible way but he was tempted to use it in this very he could have made a lot of money, he could have done all kinds of stuff, but he stayed true to the core of who he was. And when he had these situations that came up where he could, you know, be a victim and say, well, my dad died and my mom died and I killed my uncle and all these things, you know, he said, no, stay true to being a hero. They did a really good job of illustrating him falling and, you know, getting back up all these things. But I saw that. And so, As a young adult, that was an inspiration, weird inspiration maybe, but it was an inspiration. And I started looking at life and I started just taking simple things and saying, you know, especially here I am an entrepreneur, right? So I'm going through all kinds of personal crazy stuff and i'm also going through um crazy you know business stuff i was bidding on a project i remember when i was 16 and a half almost 17 i was bidding on a project that was a two two 250 million dollar government contract and i'm 16 17 years old competing against engineers and guys three times my age with degrees and everything else I didn't get the I didn't get it uh, I didn't get the bid but I was one of the last three finalists in the bid so the stress of that and all of these things you know that were happening and so I just started seeing that you just have two choices when we simplify life down to the simplest forms possible right fork in the road you have two choices and when you have the clarity to understand that, if you take the victim mentality, that's really just going to lead to more pain and more you know, stupidity. And if you take the hero mentality, it's going to lead to more pain and possibly more stu- stupidity. But the journey is going to be rewarding and progressive. That's the difference, is that you're going to be moving forward. In a victim road, you're pretty much doing U-turns all the time or spinning around in roundabouts. Yeah, yeah you know? sure. So huh. – That's just kind of how I saw it and that's where I started putting it together. And that's what we you know, that's what I do with individuals as as often as I can, is just you know, look, just because you pick the hero path doesn't mean it's all gonna be easy and rosy and perfect. In fact, it won't be. But the difference is is you're going to be moving forward. What's the quote, you know, if you're gonna fail, fail forward. Yeah, sure, sure. It's that it's that concept.
1: What about the shame that's involved with some of this stuff? I mean, a lot of people write in or talk about this at boot camp, you know, that they've got the shame involved from growing up, you know, a little bit rough. And you definitely have that qualification, you know, grow up really tough. All right, back to the show. How did you handle and how do you handle the shame? A lot of people are looking for some sort of magic pill, but obviously that's not the case. It's not. And man, Jordan, shame is like shame is a
0: controlling factor uh, almost as much as fear. Um, Actually, it's probably more than fear. I'd put it on top of fear. Um, It's it was something that I did not meet my biological father till I was 26 years old, and I was incredibly ashamed and filled with shame about that entire relationship and also my biological mother. I didn't meet my biological father until I was 26 years old. I reached out and spent some time with my biological mother when I was in my teens and then that didn't work out and it wasn't until this Christmas, so literally like two, three weeks ago, that I gave her a hug and I actually went and and had a a little bit of a moment with her and and we chatted about some things. But my father and that shame and my mother and that shame and then all kinds of other shame that was there, the shame was so controlling. And I hit it all the time. And it was always, I mean, I would make up all kinds of excuses. Like, where's your dad? Oh, he's fighting a war. Oh, he's a business. I mean, dude, I can't even probably, there's no way I could keep up with the lies that I was telling because of the shame and who I was. And and that bled into every aspect of my life. And then I got good at lying. And so, I mean, it was just, it was crazy. So at 25 years old, um, I had my first child. And at 26, you know, I reached out and And was like looking at my child doing some crazy things. And I'm like, wow, I need to know, you know, who I am. I need to go on a who am I journey and find my parents. And so I reached out at 26 years old, met my father. Wasn't some great Hollywood moment, but it was cool. And it was, you know, a moment for me. And when I came home from meeting him, I met him in L.A. at a Toys R Us. Crazy story. Oh, that's when I met him. I came home and I've always used writing privately journals, things like that, which I recommend to anybody. But I started writing my story. I started typing it, writing it. And friends and people said, you should put that online. And I was like, no, I'm too ashamed, right? I can't. I can't tell anybody this. Nobody wants to hear this story anyway. But somebody powerful in my life convinced me to put it on. So I did. I put it on a blog. And this was in 2006, 2007. I put it on a blog. And within about three, four weeks, I had 10,000, 20,000 people every day coming and reading my chapters. And that was really hard at first, because obviously, you know, here I am lying about everything and sh- very ashamed about everything. And, but then it was this amazing th- release where it was like, wait a minute, all these people are coming back. Every time I write a new chapter, or a new blog, people are coming back and reading. I'm getting all of these emails wait, this is a positive thing. My story is now positive. I don't need to hide anymore. I don't need to live these two lives anymore. I can tell my story. It's okay to be who I am. It's okay to have these feelings. So to your question, how did I get rid of the shame? I let myself become incredibly vulnerable and I let it out. I just let this, I let all of that you know, those weights that I was carrying in the bottom of my stomach out and I felt exhilarated. Now I have lots of haters. I have people who hate that I'm telling my story. My father's one of them. You know, I have a lot of people who don't like that. I tell my story, but you know what? I don't care because the people that it impacts is so amazing and it's so humbling and it's so gratifying that it's, I'll never stop telling my story and I'll never stop being detailed. I mean, I, I get very, very detailed when, when needed and the right appropriate times are. I did a founder's video and got somewhat detailed about some of the things that happened to me. And it's not for attention. It's not for anything. It's for the understanding that that is going to bring one more person out of shame and let them see. As I, We have a T-shirt that says, I am proof that it's all okay. I am here to live another day. I am me. I am human. And that quote and that statement and that power eliminates shame. Because when you understand that it's okay to be who you are, regardless of what that is, shame has no power, shame has no control, thus shame is irrelevant. But the only way to release that shame is to come to that realization. For everybody, it doesn't mean starting a blog and telling everybody your deep, dark secrets, but it does mean releasing those weights that you're carrying around in some form or fashion and realizing that there's 7 billion of us on the planet and the odds are as somebody has been through what you've been through at some level and can relate and understand and you're not alone. And When you're not alone and you understand that and you feel that and you know that, there is no shame. The only reason we have shame is because we think we're the only ones.
1: Ah, yes, of course, right, because you think your situation is unique. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely, man. I definitely, I can, I can definitely identify a little bit with that. It's just weird that you meet at like a Toys R Us because you're both adults. It's just like, you didn't meet for coffee, why <laughs> Toys R Us, why so late, what the hell? Yeah. It's just such a bizarre...
0: It is, and and I'm sure you're dying for me to tell everybody who my father is. So let me. uh, (laughs) That's also bizarre. Yeah, let me give a little quick background is that my father is somebody famous. He's been famous for many, many years, and he wasn't famous when he left me, but he was famous shortly thereafter. And uh, when you're trying to reach somebody famous, it's very, very difficult. And I went through a lot of processes to meet my father that no child should ever have to go through. But it's to some degree understandable based on the circumstances of his popularity and his fame. And I technically met him in an elevator at night going into the hotel. But my first experience with my father was in a Toys R Us and what had happened is my dad had done something very stupid in the world and got on the page of National Enquirer because of it, and was on a PR campaign. And he was trying to show he wasn't what the National Enquirer said he was. And the Toys R Us was part of that. And I won't get into all the details of the Toys R Us, but I will get into a quick little piece of it. My first night with my father was just a, literally like, it's late, I landed, this is your dad, you know, yep, that's my son. Cool. Here's your hotel room. See you in the morning. That was pretty much it. The next morning it was, here's the limo. We're going to Toys R Us. We're going to buy a bunch of kids presents, you know, act like we're a big, happy family. (laughs) Oh,
1: wow. That's weird. Right. Sounds,
0: sounds great. I'll do that. Right. Um, I love kids. So no big deal. So yeah, Here we are in Toys R Us, literally helping, I don't know, probably 20, 30 kids buy Christmas presents and do all these fun, crazy things for themselves. And I won't forget this. And then this, with all the negative stuff that, you know, people are probably thinking of my father, this is a moment that will forever live in my memory um, of who my dad is. Regardless of what he has become, this is his core. And I wish more than anything, and I may even tear up a little bit, but I wish more than anything that with all the knowledge I have, I could reach my father's core and bring that out. It's like a Darth Vader moment, right? And so here I am in this Toys R Us. It's very overwhelming. The media is there. Celebrities are there. There was some very high pro- profile boxers that were there. Lots of people were at this Toys R Us. They'd shut the Toys R Us down. Here's all these, you know, these kids that are just, you know, on cloud nine getting whatever they wanted and my dad's paying for everything and, and um, my dad is in the back of the store and I'm in the back of the store in the baby section of Toys R Us and I'm sitting in a car seat. Kind of a weird analogy if you think about it for a minute but I'm sitting in a car seat and I remember the little security mirror you know, that they put in corners of sh- stores so you can kind of see like all the back little corners I'm sitting in this car seat bawling Like, I just kind of lost it. Just kind of like, you know, all these emotions, all these feelings, meeting my father, the reality that we'd been at Toys R Us for a couple of hours, seeing all these kids, hearing their stories. There was just a lot of emotion. And I bawled like a man. I sat in this car seat, and I remember looking up at the the security mirror, and I could see myself. And I remember literally looking at myself and talking to myself and saying, what the are you doing here? You know? That you had a life, you have everything going, you didn't need to go through this, why are you sitting here doing this? And all these different emotions are going through. Well, over the PA comes the store manager kind of telling everybody like, hey, it's time to, you know, we got to open the store back up in 15 minutes, everybody with such and such organization, please come to the front, you know, we got to do final checkouts, blah, blah, blah. So I kind of got myself back together and put the car seat back up on the display and, and started walking up through the store and tried to kind of stay back and let all the chaos finish so I could be in the back. Well, I come around um, the action figure section and uh, there's this, this little boy there and my father and nobody's around. No cameras are around. Nothing's there. My dad was almost doing the same thing I was doing, like trying to kind of stay out of all the chaos at this point. And they couldn't see me, but I could see them. And the little boy was just crying and my dad leaned down to him, and the little boy basically was telling my dad that he missed, he missed his chance to get the toy that he wanted. And he was one of the smallest children there, so I, I'm sure he kind of got pushed out of the way during the chaos and stuff. And he was just saying, you know, I just wanted this toy. I couldn't get it, and I, I couldn't, now I didn't get any toys, and I'm really sorry. And, and my dad reached into the back of his pocket and pulled out $100. And he gave this little boy $100 and looked at him and said, do not tell anyone. Just take this money and have a good Christmas. And that sounds really simple and really, you know, whatever. And $100, maybe not a big deal. But watching this interaction gave me peace that, yeah, my dad's made a lot of stupid mistakes. Yeah, my dad is, is not great. <laughs> He's not a great father figure. Yeah, my dad's all these things but my dad's core is still human and who my dad is and what he what he puts out there to the world maybe that's not the core of his essence and it was just like just even right now as i tell this story it's this calming feeling that everything's okay that his mistakes are not my mistakes his mistakes are not his identity and at some point whether it's on this earth or the next there will be an opportunity for his core to shine through and for his core to become his true purpose and his true essence. And so that was it. That was the Toys R Us experience. We left. The little boy was ecstatic. I mean, I'm sure the little boy had never seen a $100 bill in his life, let alone gotten one on his own. And it became a very magical moment that all the bad and all the crazy, and there's been a lot of more crazy stories with my dad and all these things has as, as we've spent about 40 hours together in a father-son relationship in the last, whatever, almost 10 years now. But um, that is the moment that will be the definition of my father. And there's a whole smorgasbord of things that we could talk about there. And, And one of the reasons that I do, and I was just asked this the other day by a father, and he said, why do you do all that you do, you know? we've talked a little bit about the purpose, all that, but he was more personal, like what's the core? And I said, you know, I've been thinking about that lately and I did an interview with National Enquirer about a year and a half ago and they asked me the same question off the interview, which was very rare for National Enquirer. Usually you're on, you know, whatever you say will be put in, but uh, I had a different arrangement with them. But off interview, they asked me the same question. I said, you know what, the reason I do everything I do is because I have a son. And when I die, or when he gets into the world, and it matters, he's five years old now, so as he grows up and he starts realizing what his last name means, the only thing I care about is that when he uses the last name Chapman, it will be an honor. And it is my responsibility to make sure that my son has the honor of being called a Chapman. And that is something that I've never had. I still don't. But I do. In, in that moment, that moment at Toys
1: R Us was honor for me.
0: And so that's the Toys R Us story.
1: Nice. Wow, man, you, you've got a there's a lot here. We've definitely dived into a lot. Thanks so much, man, for your candor and for your time. Is, is there anything I haven't asked you that you definitely want to deliver? Obviously, we'll link up to your show and your project in the show notes as well. So no need to to dive too much into that uh, more than we already have.
0: No, I, I just want people out there who are listening and, you know, I've had opportunity to be with some of the great, you know, self-help gurus and, you know, all the Tony Robbins, Les Browns, Bob Proctors, Brian Tracy's, you know, all these, these guys that get on stages and, and do all this and, and they're amazing, They're amazing men and they do amazing things, but. I want to make it incredibly simple for somebody who's out there. I don't care if you're dealing with a bad marriage, a bad situation, a divorce, if you're dealing with, you know, a business that's not going well or you're trying to go to the next level, whatever it is, it's all about creating simplicity in your own vision, in your own clarity, what you can see, all this stuff, this interview it's not about what I'm saying or what you're saying. It's not about the other 200 interviews that you have in here and what they're saying. And it's not about any of that. It's about the clarity and simplicity that you receive, whatever you believe in, whether it's God, whether it's universe power, whether it's, you know, whatever, wherever you believe you get that core, you know, clarity from these kinds of podcasts, these kinds of messages, these kinds of stories simply enable you as an individual to simplify the chaos that you're surrounding yourself in. And when you take a moment to just breathe and just let everything go and realize all the stuff we've talked about, you know, honesty, healing, hope, you're not alone, get rid of shame, all these different things, exercise, workout, you know, whatever, all these different hundreds of amazing podcasts you've had. When you just take a moment and simplify the feelings that you're getting or the message you're receiving and figure out how right now when Jordan comes in with his music and you know closes the show out and you're done listening, when this podcast is over, take that energy, that clarity, that vision, that voice, that moment, whatever, take that simplicity and take action. Do something with it. Make something happen. Because when you take action, you get results. And as I always say, you know, my little personal quote, tagline, close, whatever, is take action because today is your day. And so all this information we've talked about, my crazy story, all the thousands of stories I could tell you even more, all the programs I have, all the programs Jordan has, whatever it is, all of those are amazing. They're great and they're fundamental, but they're fundamental to do one thing. It's to bring clarity to your own mind, your own purpose. And you've had an opportunity now, hopefully, to get that. And so now act upon it. Just take action on it. You know, don't spend time Googling who I am and trying to figure stuff out. Do that later. But right now, take action on the feeling you have and do something about it, whether it's you know what? I'm not going to make excuses anymore and I'm going to start this business or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do this or I'm going to go and and I'm going to reach out to my wife because we're having a trouble and I've been blaming her and it's her fault. No, it's you know me. I'm going to go rub the back of her neck. I'm going to go buy her flowers. Whatever the hell it is, just take action and do something based on whatever you've been inspired to do here. Otherwise, everything we've said for the last 54 minutes is
1: worthless. Awesome. Thanks so much, Wesley. Much appreciated, man. Anytime, brother. Anytime. Not much I can sort of wrap up for you guys there. There is a lot of wisdom in those stories. Uh, There's a lot to read between the lines, and there's a lot to be taken from somebody who survived that much. There's, of course, a lot more in Wesley's resources, which we'll have linked up in the show notes if you guys really want to get down to some nuts and bolts. I know you're thinking, no, nah, he hasn't told us who his father was, and you ended the show. It's wrong with you. Now we're never going to find out. His father was Dog the Bounty Hunter, Dwayne Dog Chapman. That didn't come out during the show, but so that you don't email me 87 times asking. There you have it. If you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank our guest on Twitter. We'll have that linked up in the show notes. Bootcamp details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. If you're listening to this, but you're not subscribed, subscribe in iTunes, or we have our iPhone and Android apps, theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android. Those are both free, of course. And special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of this show. Please tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found it.